The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 34 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So I got a lot of questions on why we aired an encore episode of Task Force 7 Radio last week, because I forgot to mention on the last show I did a couple of weeks ago that the following Monday was Memorial Day weekend, and we'd be off. We'd be off. So uh, we, we wouldn't have a fresh new episode for everyone to listen to during the holiday weekend. My bad on that one for not uh, letting everybody know, but I did run an encore of my interview with one of the most popular C- uh, CSOs in the country. The CSO of Aetna, Jim Routh. And everybody loves Jim. You know, mad respect for him across the industry. Everybody loves Jim. And since it's one of the most listened to episodes in TF7 radio history, I thought it'd be a good one to air during the holiday weekend. So just remember moving forward, since a lot of the major holiday uh, weekends, and, and well, the holidays themselves, they've actually fallen on a Monday, it seems. And we air live on, on Monday evenings. Whenever that happens, we will air an encore episode of, of Task Force 7 Radio for your listening pleasure. So, not that it matters, because you can listen to any episode anytime you want on playback, but that's the way we roll for the holidays. So, the last news show I did a couple of weeks ago on a variety of different topics, including quantum computing, was one of the most listened to episodes in the first seven days of the episode airing ever. So the word's getting out. Task Force 7 Radio is the voice of cybersecurity. Uh, and, and the word is definitely uh, getting around that uh, this is where you get some good analysis, some good updates, and some great guests. So don't forget, you can find Task Force 7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at TaskForce7Radio.com. And, of course, the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at VoiceAmerica.com. So, all in all, nine different options to get your TF7 radio fix. I go over this all the time because people still ask me the same question. Where can I get your playback on Task Force 7 radio? We're everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 radio, you get all your options. Just check us out. TF7 radio playback at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, please, please don't forget to subscribe. So we got a great show for you tonight. John Moran, the senior product manager for DF Labs, is going to be on the show, and we're going to talk about the orchestration and automation of incident response operations, and what could possibly be cooler than that. So very cool stuff here. I mean, I love breaking down business processes and re-engineering them, and then what you do is you find the technology to align to the newly engineered process, and I'll talk to John about that a lot. You know, once you do that, you're prepared for battle, and you're going to see the difference in your operations. You're going to see the ROI that you get. And after all, you know, our adversaries, both the nation states and organized crime groups, well, they're commiserating and collaborating like Fortune 500 companies with no laws, no regulations, no rules to slow them down. I mean, they're just going as fast as they can because who cares if they do anything wrong? They're criminals, right? That's, they don't care, right? And they don't have the same rules that we do. And 
So they're automating their TTPs to, to make it cheaper to attack us. And so we're a little bit behind here. We're so far behind in the automation of our defenses. But why is that? Why is that happening? So maybe it's being fixed. Stay tuned to find out what you can do about it. John Moran, the Senior Product Manager from DF Labs, coming up on the second and third segments of the show. So on May 25th, the FBI released a statement last week with a warning to all United States citizens to reset their home and office routers to defeat an advanced persistent threat against all Americans, all everybody. And it was facilitated by none other than our, our dear friend, President Vladimir Putin in the Russian government. That's right. Say it ain't so. But the Russian government is attempting to spy on all of us. All right, so the FBI released a statement with the headlines, Foreign Cyber Actors Target Home and Office Routers and Network Devices Worldwide. So the FBI recommends that any owner of a small office or home office routers power cycle, which means reboot, the devices. This is a statement from the FBI. The foreign cyber actors have compromised hundreds of thousands of home and office routers and other network devices worldwide. The actors used VPN filter malware to target small office and home office routers. The malware is able to perform multiple functions, including possible information collection, device exploitation, and blocking network traffic. So the size and scope of the infrastructure impacted by the VPN filter malware is significant. The malware targets routers produced by several manufacturers and network-attached storage devices by at least one manufacturer. The initial infection vector for this malware is currently unknown. Then it goes into the threat a little bit. Just a couple sentences. VPN filter is able to render small office and home office routers inoperable. The malware can potentially also collect information passing through the router. Detection and analysis of the malware's network activity is complicated by its use of encryption and misattributable networks. Talk a little bit about the defense now. The FBI recommends any owner of a small office or home office routers reboot the devices to temporarily disrupt the malware and aid the potential identification of infected devices. Owners are advised to consider disabling remote management settings on devices and secure with strong passwords and encryption when enabled. Network devices should be upgraded to the latest versions of firmware. So that's quite an incredible warning from the country's top law enforcement agency. And it brought the reality of the threat we face every day in the cybersecurity space, right from Silicon Valley, California, right to Spring Valley, Ohio, right? We're all in this together, folks. It's just not the cybersecurity professionals. We're all in this together, right? So the, the short statement lacked some details, uh, obviously. And I know cybersecurity professionals out there listen to what I just said and they're like, wait a minute, there's, there's a lot of stuff missing here. It's, it's, it, you know, I'm still trying to figure out how this is going to solve this problem. I mean, it lacked details that would explain how re rebooting your router would actually prevent you and your families from letting Yuri the Russian spy into your homes and being infiltrated by the Russian government. So let's just talk, talk about that for a second. Let's unpack it, right? What happens when, you're, when you reboot your router? What happens is that it flushes out all the short-term memory in your router when you reboot it. it all the short-term memory gets flushed out and kind of goes away, right? Just think of it that way. And a lot of cybersecurity experts out there believe that there isn't any malware that could survive a reboot of an IoT device. But who knows? Who knows? There is always a first, right? Well, well, maybe. Let's talk about it. And I promise you, I'm not going to go geek out on you like I did with the quantum computing and in the encryption a couple of weeks ago. I, I caught a lot of flack for that. I'm not going to do that again, I promise. All right, so let's talk about it. Simply put, the attack the Russians are launching occurs in three phases, and it is capable of maintaining a persistent presence on an affected device. That means once it's there, it can, can stay there for a very long time, even after a reboot. So we'll get into that in a minute. Get into that in a minute. So and although I, I think the creators of this malware were particularly interested in SCADA industrial control systems, it can victimize the average Joe just as easy. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of routers listed that on, the, uh, on the FBI announcement that's, that were vulnerable to this attack and, and that uh, should be especially aware of, of this vulnerability. So the attack is a multi-stage attack. And I think the first phase is finding routers that are vulnerable to the attack. Uh, you can easily find them online. As I mentioned, uh, Linksys routers were, were among some of the routers listed. I know there, were, there are many people who use Linksys routers, and, and infecting the router with the malware is, is definitely uh, a goal of the first stage. So this gives the bad guys a landing pad, 
right? They get a persistent presence in your virtual world. Once that happens, the malware contacts what we call the CNC. And the CNC is the command and control server where the malware can get instructions to download more malicious code and do all kinds of nefarious things to your network device. So then stage two is, is pretty predictable. The bad guys deliver more really bad stuff to your network. And that's the purpose of getting the foothold in your device in the first place. And essentially, they just take over your world. They could steal credentials, exfiltrate data, pretty much just own your ass. All right. Then, 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 then from there, folks, there is what people in the industry call brick the device, meaning they just take it over completely. You see, there is firmware in your router that gives the router instructions on how to operate. The malware the bad guys load on your router can overwrite that firmware and basically render the router useless, if that's what they really want to do. So then there's the third stage, which, as you can predict, involves all sorts of nefarious conduct, you know, plugins, packet sniffers, access to the Tor network, which if you are not familiar with that, what that means, the Tor is essentially thousands of computers used around the world as relay devices or, or proxies to conceal the identity of the sending computer, making the sender anonymous. And of course, you can see how that would be very useful to organizations committing crimes on a massive scale. So knowing that, just rebooting the router isn't going to work because the bad guys are just going to reinfect the device with the process that I just described. So the statement by the FBI didn't assure anyone of anything and created a lot of questions. And certainly, I don't think it had the desired effect that they wanted it to have. But as usual, and, and in my humble opinion, this is just another case of the FBI sort of holding things a little bit close to the vest when it comes to sharing information. I have a lot of experience with these guys. And sometimes this happens with that organization. It's the, it's the culture. It's the culture there. I love the FBI. I worked on the FBI test, uh, t Joint Terrorist Task Force after 9-11. I got tons of friends there. I got tons of friends in the FBI. But the, the culture problem exists. I'll tell you the same thing. It does exist. It's a, a little bit of an issue um, with not sharing information. It's kind of well-known, and it's well-documented throughout history. But things have gotten a lot better, and I'm, and I'm sure they have. But the problem still exists, and it's a whole other topic we'll get into one day. And information sharing, all law enforcement agencies, not just by everybody. But the good, good news is that the Department of Justice also issued a statement pretty much at the same time, within a couple of days of each other, which laid it out a little bit more and provided some clarity on what was going on and why everyone needed to reset their routers. But it also articulated all the entities that were working on chasing down the bad guys and disrupting their activities, which was interesting to see as well. So here's what the Department of Justice had to say. The Justice Department today announced an effort to disrupt a global botnet of hundreds of thousands of infected home and office routers and other network devices under the control of a group of actors known as the Sophocy Group, also known as APT28, Sandworm, X-Agent, Pawnstorm, Fancy Bear, and Sednit. We're going to probably refer them to as Fancy Bear uh, moving forward. And I think a lot of people in the industry do refer them mostly as Fancy Bear. Some as APT28 as well. So the group, which has been operating since at least in or about 2007, targets government, military, security organizations, and other targets of perceived intelligence value. Now here's an interesting part of the, the announcement. These are the people that were involved in the announcement. And they each had something to say which I thought was very refreshing, quite frankly. Assistant Attorney General for National Security, John C. Demers. Uh, U.S. Attorney Scott W. Brady for the Western District of Pennsylvania. Assistant Director Scott Smith for the FBI Cyber Division. FBI Special Agent in Charge Robert Johnson of the Pittsburgh Division. And FBI Special Agent in Charge David J. Lavalle of the Atlanta Division made the announcement, which looks to me like there's a case out of the FBI Philadelphia office. So thank you to the men and women out of the FBI Philadelphia field office for fighting the good fight on behalf of all of us. So before I go any further, folks, I want to mention something. Special Agent Lavallee out of the Atlanta field office was part of this announcement. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that Special Agent Lavallee also succumbed last week to injuries he sustained while responding to the terror attacks at Ground Zero on 9-11. So Agent Lavallee developed cancer as a result of being exposed to toxins and contaminants at Ground Zero 
while he was providing aid to victims and searching for survivors, putting his own life at stake to protect us all. And because of his actions, he eventually developed cancer and made the ultimate sacrifice for his country. Agent Lavallee was a United States Marine. He was a Harrisburg, Pennsylvania police officer. He spent 22 years serving the greatest nation on earth with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And America has lost another patriot, another hero. May God rest his soul. So the statement goes on to say, the Department of Justice is committed to disrupting, not just watching, national cybersecurity threats using every tool at our disposal. And today's effort is just another example of our commitment to do that, said Assistant Attorney General Demers. So this operation is the first step in a disruption of a botnet that provides the fancy bear actors with an array of capabilities that could be used for a variety of malicious purposes, including intelligence gathering, theft of valuable information, destructive or disruptive attacks, and the misattribution of such activities. The United States Attorney's Office will continue to aggressively fight against threats to our national security by criminals, no matter who they work for, said U.S. Attorney Brady. This court-ordered seizure will assist in the identification of victim devices and disrupts the ability of these hackers to steal personal and other sensitive information and carry out disruptive cyber attacks. This is important, folks. Listen. Listen to what he says. This court-ordered seizure, right? We will be relentless in protecting the people of Western Pennsylvania from international corporations to local businesses to the elderly from these threats. Statement goes on to say, today's announcement highlights the FBI's ability to take swift actions on the fight against cybercrime and our commitment to protecting the American people and their devices, said Assistant Director Scott Smith. By seizing a domain used by a malicious cyber actors in their botnet campaign, the FBI has taken a critical step in minimizing the impact of the malware attack. While this is an important first step, the FBI's work is not done. And the FBI, along with our domestic and international partners, will continue our efforts to identify and expose those responsible for this wave of malware. You guys starting to get it? You guys starting to get what's going on here? It goes on. The FBI will not allow malicious cyber actors, regardless of whether they are state sponsors, to operate freely. I mean, they don't care if they're Russians or Russian government or not. They don't care. That's what they're saying right here. This is from the FBI special agent in charge, Bob Johnson. These hackers are exploiting vulnerabilities and putting every American's privacy and network security at risk. Although there is still much to be learned about how this particular threat initially compromises infected routers and other devices, we encourage citizens and businesses to keep their network equipment updated and to change default passwords. This is important, folks. Listen to what these people are saying. They're trying to protect us. And finally... It says, this action by the FBI, the DOJ, and our partners should send a clear message to our adversaries that the U.S. government will take action to mitigate the threats posed by them and to protect our citizens and our allies, even when the possibility of arrest and prosecution may not be readily available, said FBI Special Agent in Charge, David J. Lavalley. As our adversaries' technical capabilities evolve, the FBI and its partners will continue to rise to the challenge placing themselves between the adversaries and their intended victims. And that he surely did for his entire career. A man who walked the walk, eventually making the ultimate sacrifice for us all. So, the announcement further stated the botnet, referred to by the FBI and cybersecurity researchers as VPN filter, targets Soho routers, that's small office and home office routers, and, and network access storage devices, which are hardware devices made up of several hard drives used to store data in a single location that can be accessed by multiple users. So the VPN filter botnets uses several stages of malware, several stages now, and although the second stage of malware, which has the malicious capabilities described above, can be cleared by a device by rebooting it, right, we described this before, the first stage of malware persists through a reboot, making it difficult to prevent reinfection by the second stage, as I explained earlier. So in order to identify infected devices and facilitate the remediation, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Western District of Pennsylvania applied for and obtained court orders 
This is key. This is answering the question that everybody had. Authorizing the FBI to seize a domain that is part of the malware's command and control infrastructure. Aha! This is it. This is why you got to reboot the router, okay? Because this is key, folks. This is what the FBI wasn't telling you in their statement. The FBI seized computers that are part of the command and control network for the bad guys, right? So that means when your infected device phones home after you reboot it, the good guys at the FBI are going to see it. You get what I'm saying here? So this is key because when your router is rebooted and flushed out to short-term memory, an initial malware persists on the device and attempts to reinfect the device, it calls home to the command and control that the FBI has control of. You follow what I'm saying here? You get what I'm putting down? So the FBI-controlled server then captures the IP address of infected devices pursuant to legal documents approved by the court. And then a nonprofit partner organization called Shadow Server Foundation will disseminate the IP addresses to those who can assist with remediating the VPN filter botnet including foreign certs and internet service providers who can help identify the victims associated with those victim IP addresses. So that's it, folks. Reboot your home routers. And when they power back up, upgrade the firmware, perform a factory reset, and change the default administrative password, and you will not only be protecting yourself, but you will be helping the FBI disrupt nation-state efforts to attack our country and our way of life. So get in the fight, people. Let's do what they're asking us to do. So we're going to take a quick break here in a second. But before I do, I want to talk about account takeover attacks again for a minute. Because these type of attacks, they become extremely lucrative for cyber organized crime groups. And no one's immune. No one. Cyber criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain by pilfering financially or personal identifiable information, commonly referred to as PII in the cyber industry directly or by selling access to these accounts on underground markets that the average consumer has no idea exist. So many times these, these are phishing attacks and you get attacked and attack, someone attacks you by sending you an email. It looks like it's from someone you know, but it really isn't. It's from a bad guy trying to get access to your computer, trying to get you to click on a link to install malware in your system and to, or maybe to get you to input your email or, or bank credentials so that they could steal them. Well, SpyCloud is fighting the good fight against ta account takeover attacks. And SpyCloud is the cybersecurity company that helps you automate customer ATO prevention. That's right, SpyCloud, folks. Their solution is sophisticated but simple at the same time. Here's how it works. SpyCloud allows you to implement easy-to-use APIs into your current application to identify when your user's credentials have been exposed in the underground. So when a user's email and password combination matches a previous exposure in their database, your company's system can reset the password proactively, thereby averting a successful ATO attack on your consumer or your employees. The SpyCloud solution helps companies combat new account fraud, loss of revenue, brand damage, spam, the whole gamut that's involved with ATO attacks. It's proactive cybersecurity, folks. So this is why I encourage you, go to www.spycloud.com slash TF7. That's www.spycloud.com slash TF7 to check your exposure on your email credentials. When you go to www.spycloud.com slash TF7, and you don't have to be a business to do this, folks. This is for anyone listening to Task Force 7 Radio. That's spycloud.com slash TF7. Put in your email address into the box to see if your email credentials have been compromised in the cybersecurity underground. It's completely free of charge. It's completely free of charge for Task Force 7 radio listeners. I did it. I, I, I did it. I did some very interesting results from my email addresses. I put all my domains in there. That's www.spycloud.com slash TF7. Enter your email address in the box and click check your exposure to see if your email credentials have been compromised in the cybersecurity underground. If you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio, and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7radio. That's with the number 7, radio.com. 
I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the senior product manager from one of the hottest cybersecurity companies in the industry, John Moran from DF Labs, coming right up after these short messages. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest, John Moran, the Senior Product Manager of one of the hottest incident response companies going, DF Labs. So, John, welcome to the show, brother. Thanks, George. Great to be here. Appreciate the time. Hey, good to have you. So, let's do some level setting out of the gate. Let's talk about some of the biggest challenges faced today by large organizations in terms of incident response and the security operations space. Because I got a lot of, a lot of experience here, um, and I know there's a lot, of, a lot of problems going on, but I'd like to hear from you, someone who has their ear to the ground and sort of knows what's going on across the entire space. So what's going on? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, wh- one of the reasons that, uh, that, that I came over to, uh, to DF Labs was really to try to address some of the problems that are going on in the industry, right? I, um, I, I previously was an incident response consultant, and, um, you know, it's, it's a challenging field to be in right now, and, and um, you know, the challenges are only getting worse. Um, w- one of the biggest challenges that uh, I observed and, and continue to observe was that organizations are, are really getting stretched. They're, they're really being forced to, to try to do more with, with less, right? So we're seeing more alerts. We're seeing an increased workload on, uh, on staff, uh, you know, on the security teams, whether you have a SOC or a CSERT team, right? Everybody is just maxed out trying to deal with, uh, with the number of security alerts and, and events and things that are coming in. Uh, you know, we all know organizations are trying to work on a, a limited budget, and, and that's really forcing people to, to try to do more with, with what they can get and, and try to find ways to, um, you know, add additional value to their security program without really spending a, a whole lot more money. And uh, one of the other problems that, that organizations are, are facing uh, in trying to kind of do more with less is competition for, for skilled analysts, right? Um, you know, there, there may not be a, necessarily a shortage of uh, security 
security professionals out there, but there, there's definitely a shortage of, of uh, skilled analysts out there. The, the people that uh, are really incident response rock stars and, and can really, um, you know, have a positive impact on, on your security program. And, and it's, it's hard to keep those people around once you find them. So uh, that, that's, that's a huge challenge. Um, you know, another challenge that, that I think we're seeing a lot of is, is the cost of security incidents, right? Um, you know, attacks are, are definitely getting more sophisticated. They're definitely getting more damaging. And uh, that, that equates to, to increased uh, both financial cost as well as things like uh, reputational cost to organizations, right? All, all these public breaches are really kind of bringing this to the, the forefront of the public's attention. And, uh, and it's becoming very costly for organizations. Especially when you start to look at things like, uh, you know, GDPR is such a hot topic right now. Uh, you know, some of the, the fines that can be associated with uh, GDPR are, are quite staggering for some organizations. So uh, we're, we're seeing the cost be a, be a huge factor. And so that's really kind of driving organizations to, to try to decrease that mean time to detection and, and that mean time to respond to, uh, to incidents and, and, and to do that with uh, the, the gaps that we talked about earlier is, is a huge challenge, uh, trying to maximize that efficiency without, uh, without breaking the bank. So what do you think is causing all these, uh, you know, the increase in the attacks? I mean, is it just, is it more bad guys? Is it easier to uh, attack organizations now? What's the root cause of some of these challenges? We just, we just listed a whole bunch of them. I just want to sort of dig down a little bit deeper. We got, we got obviously budget considerations. We got talent crisis that's hitting us. We got the frequency of attacks that's increasing. We're, we're measuring now by the second. How many attacks come in by the second? I mean, why, you know, how do we, how do we address all these things at once? And why is this occurring like this? Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't think it's necessarily that attacks are getting easier, right? I, you know, I think that, um, you know, as a security industry, we, we've certainly done a good job at, um, you know, trying to, to, to harden our, uh, our attack surface. Um, but, you know, the bottom line is we're just kind of, uh, you know, trying to swat away flies and, and it's just not working. What we're doing just isn't keeping pace with the attackers. Uh, you know, attackers are, are getting more sophisticated. There's more tools out there. And it seems like every time we come up with, uh, you know, a new, uh, you know, detection or prevention mechanism, um, you know, there's a way to bypass it the next day. Um, so, you know, I, I, I don't think um, that it's necessarily a, a failure of, uh, of technology uh, so much as, as processes and uh, using technology, you know, to its most efficient, right? You know, I, I think uh, most attackers are, are, or at least uh, the, the majority of them are, are financially driven, right? So, we're, you know, as, as long as they can continue to monetize their attacks, uh, whether it's through, um, you know, more easily monetized or more directly monetized things like, uh, you know, payment card uh, fraud and things like that, or uh, through, uh, you know, confidential information being sold or anything like that. Um, you know, I, I think it's really the monetization that's driving a lot of these attacks. Obviously, there's, there's other motivations, uh, you know, hacktivists and nation state type things, but uh, quite a bit of it is, is uh, financially motivated. And I think so that's is, why is, we're is, still seeing increased is it is it become more difficult because nation states are are colluding and collaborating with organized crime uh, groups more and more often now? Is it is this making things more difficult because you know they they're sharing TTPs and, and they, you know the IOCs that we detect don't really uh, they're they're kind of confusing us when it comes to attribution because they're collaborating with each other now. So does that have anything to do with this? Yeah, I mean, you know, attribution is something that, you know, we could probably do a whole other segment on. Uh, you know, attribution is, is definitely becoming more difficult between the, the, the kind of collaboration that you mentioned and and really, you know, attackers doing a, a very good job at, um, you know, trying to, to thwart attribution through through various mechanisms. And, and to be quite honest, sometimes, uh, you know, we, we as an industry don't do a great job at attribution. We, we make a lot of assumptions and things. So there, there's definitely a lot of of challenges and attribution that we could go through a, a whole segment on, but um, yeah, that you know that is that is very difficult, and and it does allow attackers to, to kind of continue to um, 
uh, you know, run around with, with impunity and, and uh, you know, again, we come back to that kind of swatting flies uh, kind of analogy. We're, we're not really um, doing a good job of, uh, of actually tracking these attackers down and, and actually stopping them at the, at the source, coming after them directly. We're just kind of knocking away attacks and, uh, and, and hoping that they'll move on to something else. So are things going to get better or better before they get worse or worse before they get better, I should say? I mean, because right now, if I look at a graph, right, from things from, from, from good to bad, it just seems like things have progressively gotten worse and worse over the years. I don't think there's any, any one year that things have even level set it or we kind of, you know, stepped back a little bit and got a little better. It just keeps getting worse and worse. And so if it is going to go this way, what, what do we need to do in the incident response space to fix this problem? You know, I think I, I, I think you're right. I, but but I don't. At the same time, I, I, I don't think it's all doom and gloom. Uh, do I think things are going to get better before they get worse, uh, or worse before they get better? Um, yeah, probably. Um, I you know I, I think we still have a ways to go as an industry and and in the the methods and the tools that we use. Um, but but at the same time, I I, I think uh, we have gotten better. Uh, in in some of our uh, our methods, it's just that attackers I, I I think are are still getting better faster, right? So there's there's kind of two upward lines. Uh, the the attackers are just moving up a little bit faster than than, than we are because they're they're able to. Um, you know, innovate uh, a little bit faster and, and really um, they're, they're not bound to the same rules that we are, unfortunately, which, which gives them an advantage. So uh, I think we're getting better as an industry, but we still have a long way to go before we can kind of outpace the, uh, the attackers. And I, and I think the way we do that is going to be uh, by looking at uh, some of our processes differently and, and trying different methods, because while, while our methods are somewhat effective right now, they're, they're obviously not uh, outpacing the attackers, and, and that's really the point we need to get to. So I'm a big process improvement guy. I like to take a look at process nonstop and have a continuous and, and, and problem solving and improving capability in your operations. I think process is king. I think we, we you know, have to re-engineer the process first and then align the appropriate technologies to the process where a lot of people just go out looking for that magic button, you know, that magic tool that's going to solve all their problems. What say you about that? Yeah, you know, I, I, I totally agree. Um, you know, I'm, I'm uh, a big fan of, of processes and procedures and having things done in a, in a planned and repeatable manner. Um, you know, I'm also a big fan of, of kind of the, the analyst-centric uh, approach, right? So, you know, I, I mean, obviously, at the end of the day, we, we need these skilled analysts to be able to do their job well. And, and I think it's the, the processes and procedures that, that really enable that. And uh, I think uh, security tools should also enable that, right? Uh, you know, you see some organizations that go out and uh, just, you know, spend, spend, spend on, on tools. You know what we need? We, we need another endpoint technology that will solve all of our problems. Uh, and the, this kind of tool-centric uh, approach hasn't really seemed to, to be working very well, at least not as efficiently as, as we might want it to be. So, you know, I think that, that tools are fantastic, but they should be used to, to, to enable those processes, procedures, and, and to be able to enable the security staff to do their job most efficiently. I think, I think that's how we're going to win. So one of the things I talk about on this show a lot is the talent crisis, and, and, and it's a huge, huge problem across the industry. So with this talent crisis going on right now across the cyberspace, there's a serious lack of skilled professionals to fill the jobs that are open right now, especially in the operations space. So how do we overcome those challenges that you, you mentioned? Well, you know, I think there's there's a couple approaches. Obviously, um, you know, as an industry, I think we've come a long way in, in training people. Um, you know, I think we've, we've come a long way in, in trying to bring those people up through the ranks and, and be able to turn those junior analysts into, into skilled analysts. Um, but, you know, in the meantime, as we continue to build up that, that skilled workforce, we, we need to find ways to, to more efficiently and effectively use the skilled analysts we have, right? I mean, you know, we can talk about training and retention and all of that, but, you know, right now what we need to do today is, is find a way to use those resources more efficiently to uh, allow them to, you know, really utilize their talents and not be kind of bogged down with the, 
the mundane stuff, the uh, the predictable, you know, kind of repeatable tasks, and and that's where I think that uh, automation can uh, really really kind of be a force multiplier uh, when we talk about the the, the gap in in talented uh, talented analysts. So let's get into that. Let's dig down into that a little bit. And this is what you do, and this is your subject matter expertise. So. What's the what's the advantages and disadvantages of adopting orchestration and automation in the incident response space? I mean, what's the delta between the buzzwords and the hype and everybody using this? And but what we're in the reality of things, really? Right. So yeah, automation can be a, an incredibly powerful tool, uh, or it can be an incredibly dangerous tool. Um, you know, I don't think uh, by its nature there's really necessarily advantages and disadvantages. I, I, I kind of liken it to, uh, you know, to having a car, right? Uh, you know, you have a car, you, you know, you fill it up and uh, you, you plan your road trip uh, and, and you've got a, you know, a solid route planned out. Uh, you're going to have a good time. Uh, you uh, take that car and you get on the highway and you, you decide you're just going to get out and do a hundred or, or get behind the wheel drunk, right? You, you're going to have a bad time. And uh, automation is, is very much like that. When you, when you approach automation uh, with a plan, uh, when you look, you sit down and, and decide uh, where automation can help you solve problems, where it makes sense to automate. Again, we talk about those kind of you know mundane, predictable, repeatable tasks. Uh, when when you have a solid plan in place and and you apply that to to automation, um, you, you can get you can get huge wins out of that. Uh, but the the disadvantages from automation really come from um, not not approaching it in a, in a methodical planned manner, right? You just come in and say, all right, we're just going to automate everything. Um, or, you know, we, we want that magical red button, right? We want to be able to say, Alexa, uh, you know, go, go mediate my, uh, my, my incident. Uh, it's just not going to happen. And and you're setting yourself up for, for failure. And, And like we talked about earlier, um, you know, another place where we, we tend to see some organizations stumble is, is when you don't look at automation as, a, as an enabler for your staff. You look at it as a replacement for your staff. Uh, we're, we're just not there, and, and that's kind of the wrong approach. And, and we see uh, sometimes in the industry organizations that approach it with that uh, sort of replacement mentality instead of that augmentation mentality uh, tend to they, – they don't see the results they're, they're, they're hoping to achieve. So this is a really good point, right? I've heard a lot of statistics being thrown around the industry regarding all the jobs, and not just in cybersecurity, but in general, that are going to be lost because of all the automation and robotics that are going to be introduced into our companies over the next you know, 10 years or so, right? So what's your thoughts on artificial intelligence and machine learning taking over millions and millions of jobs around the industry? Well, let's talk about specifically cybersecurity. I mean, in a place where, in an industry where jobs are just exploding, in India, I think they're going to add a million cybersecurity jobs, right? Now people are worried about automation and, and robotics actually taking away cybersecurity jobs. Do you see that happening? Um, you know, I, I, I just don't, at least not in the foreseeable future. I think that, um, you know, there, there's definitely use cases for, for automation and, and AI to, uh, again, help support the human process. Um, but I, I don't think we're anywhere near a point where we need to worry about AI or, or machine learning, automation, whatever you, whatever particular buzzword you want to use, uh, taking over jobs and, and, and putting us, uh, putting us all out of work, right? Uh, there, there's certainly plenty of work to go around. And, and again, where we see the, the smart use of automation and AI is in the, uh, the support of, of our staff, right? Uh, you know, taking advantage of the skills that they have and, and allowing the automation, the AI to kind of take over those repeatable processes. It allows those analysts to focus on the tasks that require human intervention. Um, so it's, it's really kind of not replacing the, the security staff, but kind of elevating the security staff and, and allowing them to, to, to focus on the stuff that we can't automate, the stuff that, uh, you know, AI just can't do. And, and uh, you know, we may get to that point someday where we can, uh, you know, tell, uh, tell our 
smart home or our smart device to, to go ahead and remediate that attack for us and uh, just be able to sit back and watch on the big screen. But uh, to be honest, I, I, I don't see that happening anytime soon. And I, I think that anybody who approaches automation or AI uh, in the enterprise at, at, at this point uh, is, is probably going to be disappointed. All right, John, we got to take a short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from John Moran after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our special guest, the senior product manager of DF Labs, John Moran. So, John, we did some level setting in, in the second segment of the show, and I want to get down sort of into the technology in this segment and, and so people can learn a little bit about what's available out there in the marketplace. So, when should an organization's operations executive consider adopting security orchestration, automation, and response? The SOAR technology is the term that they use in the industry now. So, when, when should someone actually think about implementing SOAR? So, you know, I, I think there's always some benefit that an organization can uh, can get through a, a SOAR technology, right? We, we talked a lot in the in the previous segment about automation. And, and you know, there's always processes within an organization that, that can be automated. Um, you know, I, I have yet to see an organization that, that can't benefit from that at some level. Um, but one thing that we didn't really talk about in the, in the previous segment was the, the orchestration, the, the O part of SOAR. And that's something that, uh, again, almost every organization can benefit from. We, we talked uh, about all the tools and things that, that are in place, right? Uh, you know, it's, it's no longer two or three security tools. It's, it's 20 or 30 different security tools in, in some large enterprises. And, uh, and all of these function somewhat independently, right? There, there's, no, uh, the, the, there's nothing tying them all together. And so the orchestration part, uh, even if automation isn't really your, 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 your cup of tea, uh, is, is really, really important uh, to, to be able to bring all those technologies together. So, you know, I think any organization can benefit from a, a SOAR technology at some level. I think the, the optimal times for starting to look at implementing a, a SOAR technology are probably either when you're uh, starting a program from scratch, right? So you're, you're starting up a SOC, you're starting up a CSERT team, you're just developing those processes and procedures and, and putting technology and people and, and processes in place. Uh, that That's a great time to, to look at bringing a SOAR technology in or when you're revamping your security program. So uh, if you're undergoing a large change in, in your processes, procedures, 
procedures and technologies. Uh, great time to look at bringing a, a SOAR technology in. Um, I, I think the other good time is, is really when you've reached that kind of level of maturity in your, in your security program and, and you're looking to take it to the next level, right? So you, you've got your, your tools, your processes in place, uh, you've got that technology and that knowledge, and, and now you want to bring a next level of efficiency to, to those processes and, and really kind of uh, elevate your program a little bit. That, that's a great time to bring in a SOAR technology because you, you have those those documented processes, you have those advanced tools in place, and now you can take those up a notch with uh, some orchestration and, and some automation. So let's get to the core proposition value of this technology. How does SOAR improve the operational performance and efficiency of the incident response process? Right. So, you know, it, it, it definitely, uh, like I said, serves as that, as that force multiplier, right? We're, we're trying to do more with less. We're trying to make our processes more efficient. And so it allows you to, to really automate those, those predictable, repeatable tasks. And, and take those away from your analysts, right? I, I know when, uh, when I was doing incident response, um, there, there's so much sort of pre-activity that, that takes place when you're, you're trying to do research, you're trying to validate alerts, you're trying to triage alerts, you're trying to enrich maybe the little bit of data you have. Take that little bit of data you have and, and kind of pivot and, and get a broader picture of what's going on. Um, so to be able to take those kind of repeatable processes that can very easily be, be automated through, you know, a scripted workflow and, and orchestrate the, the different tools and the different processes that are involved in that, right, that, that takes that, those hours that analysts would spend doing those tasks and, and does it in a matter of minutes and, and makes that available to the analysts to immediately begin acting on, right? That's that kind of that force multiplication. So it's really increasing the, the efficiency uh, of your, your response process and it's, it's cutting down the time that it takes to respond, right? We talk about that mean time to, to respond and, and trying to reduce that. And that's so critical when you talk about uh, one, trying to, you know, reduce risk and reduce potential damage and, and two, uh, you know, trying to comply with some of the more uh, stringent regulations that are out there as far as uh, response and notification. And, and obviously, you know, GDPR being the, the big one right now with that, that magic 72 hours, right? Trying to, trying to get to that point where you can meet those kind of standards, um, you know, everything you can do to, to decrease that, the, the amount of manual work that an analyst has to do uh, really, really increases the, the efficiency and effectiveness of, of your program. It, it allows those analysts to focus on those tasks that require human intervention, the, the, the ones that we can't automate that require a human decision. Uh, when we take all the other stuff out and you can focus on that, the, the, the effectiveness and the efficiency of your security program is, is just uh, astronomical. So I would think that everybody wants to reduce the mean time that they respond to incidents. They want to reduce risk. They want to mitigate risk. They want to meet their regulatory obligations and the time-sensitive deliverables that they have uh, responsibilities to, to uh, deliver on that. So I, I, shouldn't everyone be looking at this? I mean, is SOAR for everyone? Should everybody in the industry take a look at, at this type of technology and start implementing this in the organizations? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think there's absolutely uh, problems that, that a SOAR can solve for everybody. Um, but, but that, I think, when, when you start looking at implementing uh, a SOAR technology, that, that's the key place to start, is, is what, what problems are you trying to solve with a, an orchestration, automation, and response platform? Um, because the, the problems that one organization faces, obviously, are, are going to be very different from, from that of another organization. Uh, so, you know, looking at, at purchasing a SOAR technology because uh, it's it's the, the new buzzword or, you know, it's the cool thing or because, hey, we want to automate. Okay, well, that, that's great. But what, what do you want to automate? What problems are, are you trying to solve 
with automation and, and that really helps you, um, you know, determine what, what particular source solution or, or what, what particular route you want to go. Um, when, when you look at it more of a, you know, in the, in the lens of what problems you have, as opposed to just buying another tool to put in there or automating because everybody's doing it. So I usually, I usually veer away from guests pitching their products on the show, but I, I have a genuine interest in this Ink Man uh, platform that you guys have over there. And I think people want to know what DF Labs are doing. So tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing over there in this Ink Man SOAR platform. You guys are, are rocking over at DF Labs. Yeah, so so I appreciate. It. I, I don't want to make it too product pitchy, but uh, but just just briefly, um, you know, I, I think we're doing some cool things, and, and um, you know, that was one of the things that brought me uh, from the consulting side into in, into product management here at DF Labs was that they they really are trying to do some cool things with incident response and and trying to um, you know increase the the efficiency of of the response process, right? And and they do that through through several mechanisms, or I say we do that through several mechanisms. Um, but I, you know, I think probably uh, some of the most important are, are kind of the the focus again on that intelligent automation that we talked about. So uh, automating what makes sense and, and allowing organizations flexibility to uh, to 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 do that automation in, in an intelligent way. So, um, you know, including humans in the loop, we call it a kind of dual mode orchestration. So uh, automating and then, um, you know, allowing a human in the loop to, to maybe review what's taken place so far, make a human decision, and then allow the automation to continue, right? I, I think that's the intelligent way to do it, and, and that's the way we're doing things here. And I, I, think, that's, uh, I, I think that's incredibly important and, and, and one of the things that we do differently here. Um, you know, another thing that uh, I, I think is cool about the way DF Labs approaches things is that we're, we're focusing on the entire incident response process, right? So we're, we're not just focusing on, okay, let's – automate and orchestrate a few things, right, and, and, and then we're done. Uh, we, we want to focus on the entire process from identification all the way through containment and, and eradication and recovery and, and even, um, you know, down into the kind of the lessons learned uh, phase of the process where we can look at, um, you know, what's been done uh, through some of our, our logging and, and, and uh, advanced metrics and things like that. So, um, you know, I, I think it's that broader focus. On, on the incident response process as a whole that really allows us to be be more effective for our customers and really solve more problems. Um, and, 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 you know, the, 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 that kind of customer-driven approach, I think, is, uh, is a huge differentiator for us. What's the most unique thing about Ink Man? I mean, first of all, the name is like, I keep saying it over and over again in my head, you know, since I've read it, you know, Ink Man. It's just, and I've never put... I've never put it together that it was incident management. I mean, I guess, you know, um, uh, I just didn't put that together that that's what it stood for. But what's, what's the most unique thing about this type of technology, you would say? What's the, what brings people to the aha moment when they use it? You know, I, I think the, the most unique thing about it is is really the uh, the ROI that you get out of out of Ink Man. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, everything is you know you, you talk you hear about automation and orchestration and everybody oh cool another buzzword, uh, but I think the real aha moment when when people are looking at Ink Man, it comes from actually seeing that in action, right? It's you know when you actually see uh, what we call a, you know, a run book or an automated workflow uh, dealing with, uh, you know, an IDS alert or, or a phishing email or, or, or something along those lines and how we can use the different integrations that we have to, uh, to automate that workflow and, and to enrich the data and make intelligent decisions um, and, and what kind of ROI you get out of that. I, I, I think that's kind of the, the aha moment is when you actually get your hands on it and you see how cool it is and, and you see how much value that can add to your security program. Is this something that's difficult to integrate into a company's current infrastructure? I mean, is it, is it, you know, how difficult is it to implement and, to, and then to use and maintain afterwards? 
It's it's not difficult at all. Um, you know, our, our particular deployment uh, comes in uh, in the form of a, of a virtual machine that can be deployed, uh, you know, on premise or it can be deployed in your in your cloud environment. And, and one of the things that we really strive to do is is to make that uh, the deployment and the and the setup and the ongoing maintenance uh, as pain-free as possible, right? So, uh, you know, all of our integrations are developed in a way that, that doesn't require programming knowledge. You don't have to be a, you know, a scripting expert or a Python expert or, or you know, take your, your language of choice to, to be able to uh, to start getting value out of it. We Our integrations are, are very easy to set up, uh, just requires, uh, you know, the information for, for that particular integration. So, uh, you know, maybe an IP address, a username and a password. Uh, and, and you can start using that integration. And then when we look at actually building the building out the workflows, um, you know, it's all done in a, in a GUI environment, uh, kind of a uh, you know what you almost might think is a I use Visio because everybody's familiar with that kind of a, a Visio workflow manner. Uh, so it's as simple as dropping actions uh, into the GUI and uh, inputting the, uh, the the you know the variables that you want to use. Uh, so, you know, IP address or port, what have you, and, uh, and then uh, connecting the dots. And, and you can start using those, those workflows immediately. So with all the technology that's out there, right, so companies are trying to reduce duplicate technologies in their asset inventory. There's just tons of technology out there. And as companies continue to purchase more technology, they find that they're, you know, actually producing redundant capabilities uh, within their infrastructure. So when you implement a technology like Inkman, for instance, does it duplicate what some of the other tools are doing? I mean, does, does it make them redundant or does it actually leverage technologies that are currently in place? Or to be honest with you, maybe it's all of the above. I don't know. I mean, the incident response is, is in sophisticated operation, but what's your thoughts? Yeah, you know, it, it, it absolutely does not duplicate anything else that, that's out there right now. Uh, SOAR tools are kind of in, in, a, in a category of their own, and, and that's kind of by design, right? The, what we're trying to do with, with orchestration and automation technology is, you know, like I said, elevate the power of those existing tools you have. So we're not making them redundant. We're making them more efficient. We're making them easier to use by kind of tying all those uh, all those individual tools together, right? So I can take your uh, your your IDS or your web proxy, and uh, I can take information from that, and now I can go back and and look at the sim, or I can go back and and take information and look at Carbon Black, for example, your other any other endpoint detection technologies, and, and so you can kind of you can tie all those tools together and it really uh, really kind of elevates the, the efficiency of, of those tools and makes them easier and, and, and more effective, right? If I can take data out of one, put it into the other and automate that whole process, um, it, it, it makes all of your tools much more efficient. That's uh, probably the most common question that, that we get asked about, uh, especially regarding tools is, you know, what, what about our, our scene? What, you know, are, are you duplicating that functionality or is this a, a replacement for a seam? Is it the same thing? And, uh, and absolutely not. We actually, it's, it's a question we hear so often. We just publish kind of a, a white paper uh, around that. Um, you know, seams are, are great technologies, um, and uh, they're necessary technologies. But a, a seam and a, and a sore really serve two different functions, uh, and they and they complement each other very well. You don't, you don't necessarily need to have a seam to, to implement a sore technology, um, but but combined together, they can be incredibly powerful tools. And again, you get that sort of uh, you know complementing factor as opposed to you know redundancy or or overlapping. So do you have any good war stories about the implementation of this technology in companies that you could share with us? I know some of this probably you can't share, but if there's, if there, are there anything that you can share about maybe when it's something of a success story, so to speak? 
Yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, you know, any particular stories, uh, you know, that uh, our, our customers may have shared with us, unfortunately, are, are things that I, I, I can't share directly. But, um, you know, we do hear a lot from our customers about, uh, you know, that really the, the savings that they've been able to achieve through uh, implementing Inkman and, and through the, you know, through the, uh, the the cool stuff they've been able to do, right? That that kind of, to me, is, is the most rewarding part, especially doing product management, is uh, hearing all the different ways that, that customers have come up with to, to use our technology or stuff we've never even thought of. Uh, we've seen customers do some very cool things around uh, handling of, of phishing, spear phishing emails, which, which we know are, are a huge issue, and uh, being able to uh, triage those phishing emails, uh, extract critical you know, URLs, IPs, uh, even uh, malicious file attachments from, from phishing emails, and be able to enrich that data, uh, actually pull that, that attachment out, run it through a sandbox, and, uh, and, and give their analysts uh, a great way to, to, to automatically triage and, and respond to these uh, phishing emails. Um, so, you know, a lot of cool stuff coming from our customers, and, uh, and it's really kind of why I got into this uh, in the first place. So, John, it was great having you on the show. I appreciate you coming on. It's great hearing about all the cool stuff going on at DF Labs. I hope to have you, have you back again. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate the time. It was great to be here. All right. Thanks so much, brother. So we run out of time, folks. But before we go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 